0: Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. We are your hosts, Ben Yanowitz and Zach Smarin. This week, we're joined by friend of the show, Jordan Yanowitz, to explore the concept of the ecology of love that he led a seminar on, which has allowed him to explore this concept in great depth, which can help shed light on the social and ecological crises of our day.
1: Before we get to that, a quick word, just as a retrospective on the last six months. When we started this podcast back in April, I did not think that we would be reaching as many people as we are today. We have had since then nearly 1900 downloads in nearly 30 countries. This is our 16th episode. And the range of subjects, guests, has truly been phenomenal. We've interviewed people from almost every continent in all kinds of locations, and we really feel the passion to just continue because there's so many interesting people to talk to, even in something that can be perceived as a niche subject.
0: I've found such a great sense of community through this work, being able to be in England and build community amongst like-minded Jews there, but also reaching out to people across Europe, North America, and beyond has been really amazing, my neshama is so full. And since I have recently moved back to California, where I am now working at my home synagogue, teaching and as a youth group advisor, it's been really incredible to see how we can relate to Judaism wherever we are, and to feel connected to the different diaspora communities that are separated by vast geographical divides, but nevertheless can come together as one. We are also totally aware that both us and many of our guests come from Ashkenazi backgrounds. Therefore, while many of our episodes have come from this perspective, we must consciously resist Ashkenormativity. We hope to bring more guests from a variety of Jewish backgrounds, as well as from other diasporas, such as the Palestinian, Albanian, or Armenian, though this will take time to fully realize.
1: To be able to continue and expand and grow, we currently are limited by certain factors. We will speak about launching our Patreon a little bit later,
2: we at the Jewish Diasporas to stand for life. Our hearts go out to all those whose lives have been lost, harmed, or displaced in any way in the past few weeks in Israel-Palestine and in Artsakh. In these chaotic times, to speak of love is a radical act. It's
1: up to us to call ourselves to task, to sing what's good and true, to bring about redemption. It's what we were free to do. For what's the point of being here if we're not moved to change our ways?
0: It's time to
1: live our praise.
0: Jordan, thank you for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about what the ecology of love means to you?
2: Well, first of all, thank you both for being willing to host me on this incredible podcast. The ecology of love. I want to start by emphasizing why I use that term, ecology. You know, you can study love through many lenses, but to think about its ecology means to think about it in context of living life and within our environments. I am an ecologist. I spent the last four years working in a community ecology lab, studying biodiversity, coexistence, the processes which allow plants primarily, but also animals and microbes to sustain and persevere in the environment over generations. I study ecology as a study of the interrelationships between plants, microbes, people, and places. But in this time in the academy, I've found that science is a pretty narrow lens and can really hinder our approach to seeing the human dimension, the personal dimension. I'm currently working part-time in restoration ecology. I'm deeply concerned with the health of our ecosystem, our environments, our communities, and the relationships between our communities and the broader living world. Ecology is the study of relationships. And the ecology of love is the examination of how love drives our own relationships to the world. This is a perspective on human ecology, which recognizes the critical role that love plays in structuring our personal identity, our sense of purpose and our role in the world, and also how we connect and find ourselves attached to others, to places and to the world at large. Love permeates our sense of kinship, family, friendship. It permeates our sense of community, of belonging to a greater whole, and also our sense of connection to our home, to nature, to the sacred, and also is intimately intertwined with our desire, our actions. Ecology, as I've already said, is the study of organisms in their environments. And in this sense, the ecology of love is the study of how love shapes human interactions, human relationships, and how this builds across scales from the scale of, you know, me and you, a face-to-face interaction towards relationships within the family, within friendships and larger groups within communities and within the whole of the earth. I want to start delving a little bit deeper in this by connecting this to a burgeoning field in biology that goes by the name eco-evo-devo, which is basically just to say that ecology, development, and evolution are intimately intertwined. Love shapes our relationships with others and our sense of belonging and comfort within various environments. Whether we're willing to be vulnerable with others and feel safe, or whether we're afraid to be open. Whether we feel connected, and whether we feel that the world around us doesn't care for us. It shapes how we navigate the world. Love also shapes our development. Early in life, having loving relationships, people we can rely on, parents, alloparents, parents friends. These relationships help us later in life with our ability to just form healthy relationships and to see others as people that might care for us. And when we grow up in a community that's loving, we're a lot more able to be honest, to be true to our own voice, to be brave, to be heard. And love is intertwined with human evolution our species has arisen as highly communal. We're intersubjectively attuned to the needs of one another through language, to be able to share ideas, to be able to hear one another, to be able to synchronize our needs. Whereas often when we think about evolution, we're thinking about competition and the way that competition drives selective pressures and natural selection. Human instincts are pro-social. We're hyper-cooperative and in-group compassion, at least in my view, preceded outgrew fear. Human diversity is inclusive. And we've always been able, at least when there isn't an environment full of fear and distrust, been able to see the stranger as a curious fellow, somebody who might be able to teach us something. And the ecology of love is an outlook that lets us recognize that we have within our nature the capacity to bring about a better world, where we're not fearful, not intrinsically competing against one another, but we're able to collaborate, to recognize that human interests are aligned. We live on one planet.
0: Thank you for that lovely introduction to the concept. I think it's a really beautiful way to think about our interconnections with each other. And I think it's really relatable because most people experience love from a very young age. It's something that you experience towards your parents, Of course, there's complications and it's not necessarily so easy, but I think that's also important to recognize that it isn't something that everyone experiences. It's something that can make people feel fear towards others very quickly if they don't receive it from that young age. What do you think is the other side of this? Because the ecology of love is a beautiful concept. We should all recognize that we share one planet and care for everyone who lives on it with us. But clearly, that's not the dominant force, because otherwise we'd be living in a better world already. So what do you see as hindering the ecology of love from truly blossoming? That's a great question.
2: As you mentioned, I taught a 10-week seminar with undergraduate students on this, and this was the last week of the class. It's a little idealistic, but I do think the ecology of love is at the center of Human nature. You know, that's a contested claim. And you know, I'm sure plenty of you all won't necessarily see the depth of this, but our desire often comes into conflict. And there's a historical contingency where when our loved ones are in danger, we're willing to be violent. We're willing to confront the scarce environment and to focus on ourselves and the people that depend upon us. The other side of the ecology of love, to answer your question, I believe is scarcity. In my perspective, I imagine that with an environment that has abundance, that provides for people, you know, the human population would grow and thrive. But when environmental changes come along and change that, existing allegiances the friendships and the divisions between those groups that form can lead to violence and the ecology of violence is bound up within the ecology of love this is why i emphasize love because only when we focus on what's actually driving People to act? Can we understand when people are engaging in these antisocial behaviors?
0: I think that's true. Violence isn't something that is just coming because people want to be violent. It tends to be because people see themselves as not safe. I think that's a good observation. So, what brought you to this idea? Because I know you've been studying ecology, you love plants. Whenever we hike, you point out every single plant. It's so clear that you really feel connected to the place we are based on your ability to understand all the other life forms in the place that we live. So what kind of brought you to expanding that beyond the obvious subjects of ecology, which is the ecosystem?
2: Well, that's, that's kind of a long story. But to begin, I would like to emphasize that my focus, as you said, was on the landscape, the ecosystem scale. But growing up in California, a landscape that's been devastated by waves of colonialism development and drought and fire. These things are part of the history and the present ecology of this landscape. You can't understand the way things are right now without putting things in context of history. And in that sense, I started studying American history. I didn't really have a good education in American history in my, you know, public school experience. Uh, And so I read some of the works of an environmental historian, William Cronin. I read two of his books, Changes in the Land and Nature's Metropolis, and then a book by Donald Worster titled Rivers of Empire. And those three books kind of chart the course of manifest destiny across the landscape, and particularly focusing on the way that different ideas of what the landscape people were seeing was and the contested claims to what people wanted that to be, shaped the history of America, the way that the ecosystem and the development of the country that I grew up in has unfolded. In the same sense, I started also being very interested in ecological philosophy, thinking about this question of nature, and another great book edited by William Cronin, Uncommon Ground. This is a book about the way that nature as a concept is a culturally constructed idea, It's pretty bizarre to think that nature is like a social construct, but it's a word that represents so much. I've already used the word human nature a few times. And if you go back to philosophers thousands of years ago, nature is just the way that things flow in their own essence. I don't want to use the word nature, but it's in there. And this book proposed a whole bunch of different ways nature is construed. And one that really resonated me was titled Nature as Community. And towards the end of reading this chapter, I had a breakthrough, recognizing that within my upbringing, in my Jewish experience, learning about God, walking through forests and chaparrales, the word nature, God, and love all resonated with the same essential meaning. Thinking back retrospectively now, I've realized that when I was first learning about God and the various ways Jews have understood this idea, it's got many names. One of the names that's written that we don't pronounce, I was taught sounds like a breath. And that breath, the breath of life that we all share, that connects us with the plants, with each other, with the whole earth, that is god this living energy and we sing after when we're parading the torah around on a saturday morning that the torah is a tree of life and our rabbi growing up was pretty inspired by martin buber's work and thinking about god as something that exists in between us and in this way love is clear that it's part of god that you can't understand the relationship between the people Yisrael and God, without thinking about love. And in this journey of thinking, I also came across Murray Bookchin, a social ecologist is what he called himself, also of Jewish descent, but not focused on Judaism. And I was in the same way, not really focused on Judaism at this time. I was much more concerned with The environment around us. I currently live in Los Angeles, a landscape that's been pretty devastated. And while there's still so much life and potential, there's so much concrete and so much ecological destruction. Thinking about the ecology of love in context of Murray Bookchin's book, The Ecology of Freedom, a book that has as much to say about the ecology of love as it does to say about freedom, I came to realize that human life is intrinsically oriented towards the objects of our love. And I use objects here in a very abstract sense. You know, you can love a person. This object is grammatically, the object of your love is wide. It can be an activity. It can be a community. It can be an idea. It can just be yourself and just affirming that. And that led me to realize just how important love is to any project that has the goal of an ecological reconciliation between the destructive industrial society we live in and the hope for a life-affirming, life-sustaining human cause. And that brings us into contact with the technologies that we use, with the social relationships that we engage in every day and that orients our life, and also the stories we tell that maintains our understanding of who we are and what we're doing in the world. And so the Ecology of Love came out of that, and I had the opportunity to apply to teach a class on this subject, and I I jumped at it, realizing that this concept could be used pedagogically pretty clearly by moving across scales, thinking about love of the other, of an individual person, thinking about love and kinship and friendship and relationships that help us understand what we care about in the world. And shape our daily social environment, thinking about love within communities and the way that a community can help lift us up and how we can help lift up a community. And then ultimately towards love of the home. This is where the crux of the ecology of the ecology of love lies. Um, ecology as a discipline in the the Greek roots, oikos logos means the study, the understanding of the home. And so the ecology of love is a recognition that home is a very fraught concept that is bound up with love. And that concept, home, can be stretched from the house you dwell in, to the neighborhood that you grew up in, to the city, the nation, perhaps, and ultimately to the world. And the ecology of love is an idea that grows out of an ecological humanism, but also my own personal Jewish philosophy. And so it's come to me to be understood as bound up with our own abilities to attach, connect, to see ourselves transpersonally. That is the ability to see that as an individual, we are incomplete, that we depend on social bonds to realize our fullest potential.
0: That really flies in the face of all the individualism we're taught to embrace and to think of ourselves as kings in our own little castles that I think really tears apart these these. Relationships of love between family, between communities, within communities, even. We've kind of spoken a little bit about the in group out group distinction and the way that that can kind of shut off our ability to feel love towards people and ideas beyond our own little bubbles. I was wondering if you could say more about. The relationship between in-group and out-group and how we might try to go beyond these distinctions that I think often prevent us from truly loving the communities, like the real lived communities we're in that are diverse and aren't so cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. It's a great question and I
2: think it boils down to this tension between what you could call the ecology of fear and the ecology of love. When we are afraid to be vulnerable with others, to be open, we're not able to recognize other people as people, individuals who are seeking their own wishes, their own love. This is the importance of dialogue, of being vulnerable. And that's hard. That's really hard. And, you know, thinking back, if you want to take an evolutionary perspective on this, I think that one of the roots of the current state of the world we live in, where war is seen as an inevitable factor of human life that's always been true. It goes down to some essential barriers between human groups. Language, the language barrier is a huge one. But even when there aren't language barriers, just ideological disagreements, a disagreement in what the story of our place in the cosmos is what the human role is within nature. And while we can never have just one story, there's so much cultural diversity, and so much of that is beautiful and necessary and vital to ensuring the resilience of a global society. We need to go beyond the fear and to put the work in to bridge those gaps.
1: I had a question that's relating to this as well. And I must say that I am approaching the subject very much as a lay person in forms of philosophy and ecology. It's really not my specialty. But you mentioned language is one of the barriers. Some things that as well, I think it's worth for us to keep in mind is distance between people. We live in a globalised world for sure, but for some people that are not able to travel far enough or don't do it regularly i've never personally been to personally been to america while i know quite a bit about it it almost does seem like just a very distant place that there is some kind of division with the people that come from there if we if we are to talk about these sorts of divisions then i guess the question of tribalism within humanity is something that is almost seen as an innate characteristic that even if we are to eliminate let's say racism or xenophobia, tribalism is still something that we feel closer to the people that we are around. How do these two aspects tie in together? And also, you know, I have to ask the traditional leftist question, how does this combine with ideas of class? And that solidarity is created among people who have to struggle in similar ways. And that there is the possibility, of course, of close connections and and, and love, perhaps, is a way that it could be described as from people that are in solidarity with each other across the globe. But there is also a certain element of pragmatism there, isn't there? We are working towards very specific goals together. and We have to make alliances for that reason. So those are the things that I'm thinking about in this moment. How would you respond?
2: Those are all really important questions, Zach. Thank you for asking them. I'll start with tribalism, because it is kind of tied up within the language and the distance question that you also asked. Is something that we see as innate, but I think it maybe isn't exactly... A real thing in the sense that, yes, when you have a community that's like a genuine face to face community, we tend to know, to support, to care for those people around us. But tribalism becomes real, I guess, when we identify outsiders. And that requires there to be an internal ideology of sameness to be already present within that group. And language is especially, I would argue, very important for that. And stories as well, because when somebody Comes in from the outside and doesn't recognize that the place that you're on is maybe in a lot of cases the source of original creation. A lot of groups across the world recognize that their homeland is where creation occurred. This belief, when we imbue a place with sacredness and somebody comes from the outside and we aren't able to really communicate that, or maybe they have a conflicting idea, we tend to get into this sense of conflict. And this also ties into class where over the evolutionary history of our species, we've constructed in groups. And when I said tribalism isn't a real thing, like it's become a thing, but it hasn't been for like the longest piece of human history. We were a 300,000 year old species. And for a very long time, human population densities were really low. One thing a lot of people imagine is the state of nature or whatever, forest that was full of people and those people were in really tight-knit communities and never those communities would compete over a a line in the sand that would lead inevitably to warfare. much more realistically, as people in these communities would get together for a small part of the year to celebrate for whatever sacred moment in time they were revering. And then for most of the year, they would disperse into smaller groups. And those groups would go gather, hunt, grow, or do whatever ecological activity they need to do to procure a means to life. But when people would encounter strangers in this case... It was usually within small groups, and sometimes there would be 10 to 30 people or even less moving across the landscape, and they would encounter each other, and it could lead to war, it could lead to disagreement, to fear, but it's just as likely as a hypothesis that people would see a stranger and think, this person looks like the other humans that I live around. And that would inspire curiosity. Maybe when people are coming with spears or whatever weaponry, you know, there would be a certain sense of fear that would grow out of that. But within these encounters, as people moved across the landscape and came back together into their larger community, there was a lot of movement. People across time have desired to wander. There's a phrase, I don't remember... Which anthropologists said this, but the reason Homo sapiens survived is because we wander. We have the ability, the instinct to get up and travel, to go see what lies beyond that far hill. And that has always brought us into contact with other people. That has also brought up intermingling as often as it's brought up violence. And I think that within the history of evolutionary biology, of social theory, we tend to assume that conflict has always been essential to our species. I just don't think that's true. And to turn this back to thinking about class, a class relationship where there are individuals who are expropriating the products of another class that's, you know, producing, let's say, grain, this depends on an already imbalanced relationship. And... I think it's really important to think about the environment in which those relationships emerged. To go back to, let's say, Ur and Sumeria, there was already within the city of Ur, those big ziggurats, there was a temple at the center of life. And that relationship of people living in the periphery, bringing food as a, a sacrifice for the divine, for the sacred, for God or God's. There was within this a loving relationship. And there were people at top who realized, you know, we get to eat as much bread as we want because people are bringing us grain and they wanted to reinforce those relationships. And so when there is a power imbalance, it's occurring because at some point somebody is betraying the faith of another. And so there's an interruption in the dialogue, in the face-to-face honest communication. And that is where the ecology of alienation (laughs) comes out of the ecology of love and comes directly into conflict to reinforce class divisions, or even not just reinforce, but to create class divisions. Whereas before there might've just been a differentiation of
0: social roles. I was also thinking, To use a more modern example, the way that tribalism and class kind of go hand in hand and have this fraught relationship is interesting because if you look at what I just did my dissertation on, in the late 19th century in Britain, you have a labor movement that is predominantly a very white labor movement. It is incredibly racist. You have a lot of Jewish immigrants coming in, and they use this tribalism, this language barrier for the most part, to create divides and organizing along class lines can actually break down those tribalistic divides that do emerge and they emerge often because of political boundaries but also cultural divides religion these things do matter and do create real divides i think we can't just say that they aren't real because empirically socially they are real it's also the fact that class then is interacting with tribalism to kind of, I don't know if I want to say creating a new class because it's almost like pushing the lowest of the working class further down in order to have the so-called native working class to be able to look down on this underclass. You see it with people of color in the US where as long as the white working poor is above non-white working poor, they're okay. And I think it's important to recognize that these, these tribalisms do take on real class dimensions and taking a broad understanding of the working class and that's simply to understand the working class as everyone that works for a living can actually help us overcome these tribalisms because the vast majority of people across the world are working class and if we can recognize that we have so much to gain by recognizing and affirming our love and solidarity because solidarity or justice is what love looks like in public. I think it's very important to understand that this isn't just something that's for vibes. Recognizing that it is intimately tied to practices of solidarity and justice is really important because love isn't just something that's a feeling. It's something that we show. It's something that we do. That's beautiful.
2: I want to jump back a little bit. When I taught this class on the ecology of love, it wasn't just thinking about the science of love and how it manifests across human communities, but also thinking about the philosophy of what love is. And what you were just saying, Ben, it really brought up this idea of limerence. Limerence, for those who don't know, is infatuation. It's a feeling of seeing another person and saying, I love this person. It's confusing because when you see someone you don't really know, and you become infatuated with them, we can imagine that we love them, But in reality, we don't know them. And that's a really important break between what love really is and limerence. Because when we have an ideal vision of what somebody else is, we don't open ourselves up to dialogue. We actually close ourselves off from them. Because in a certain point, if we hear something from this person that doesn't fit with our imagination of who they are, it can create some dysphoria within ourselves and it can hurt us. But that's explicitly because our imagination was exactly that, it was our imagination. It wasn't actually opening ourselves up to the other person. I wanna touch one more point on that because that same imagination disjunction with reality has occurred at an ecological level. I'll use the example of California. When people were colonizing this space, they saw a landscape as what it was and then imagined what it could be. One thing that really separates colonial society from other ways of being is that it's imposing a desire on the other without actually examining what's good for the other. And this occurs within class conflict as well because the bourgeoisie in this case imagines that you know we're helping the proletariat. You're giving working people money. This is a fair and equal exchange. But in reality, People need to live.
0: I think that also speaks to community because we can have an imagined understanding of what the community is or the nation. This can be understood in different ways. There's an idealized version of it and then there's the the hard reality on the ground. of the fact that the community is... Arguably nothing more than the sum of its parts, the people who make it up and the sub communities that make up the community. In terms of thinking about this within the Jewish context, how does the ecology of love relate to Judaism, both Jewish ideas, but also in terms of Jewish community and how you understand it?
2: So I already mentioned that there was a few Jewish thinkers that really inspired some of the ideas within the ecology of love. But I just want to point ourselves to some of the important commandments within Judaism. Love thy neighbor as thyself, as some translations put it. Really investigating what is the neighbor? You know, we often think of neighbor as the person who lives next door. But neighbors are people who, whether we know it or not, shape our life. And in that sense, neighbors can be the whole ecosystem, the whole biosphere. And we need to have a certain affinity, affirming the existence and the interdependence that we have upon that biosphere, to breathe, to drink water, to eat food. Judaism is a religion that really emphasizes gratitude for the cycles of life, the turning of the globe, the rising of the sun, and the creation of each day anew, the turning of the year and the seasons and the harvests and the rains, and also recognizing that the relationship between This world and God is one of love, even if in a lot of cases God is seen as other than the world, detached from the world. God has a love for the world that led to creation, and we have an obligation to give that love back. The question of what does that love that we give back look like is a very important one. I just want to point to a very interesting Jewish philosopher that inspired some of my thinking, Emmanuel Levinas. His Jewish philosophy is rooted in the understanding that when we come face to face with the other, the inexplicable difference, the reality that this person we're looking at, there is something that we'll never actually know. There is an infinity within each and every one of us. Within us arises a moral responsibility to act to attune our needs to that of the other, such that we can find the unity within the multiplicity of the world and to call upon that. There's lots of other Jewish thinkers. I already mentioned Buber, who focuses on the dialogue that comes out of that and the importance of that dialogue as a way to bridge the gap between ourselves and others in the world, such that we're not seeing other people as instruments for our own desires, rather as people in themselves that can transform our own life so that we can act for the sake of all. And I think that is an essential facet of my own Judaism that I see as almost one-to-one with the ecology of love going beyond ourselves to find connection with the other, with the whole, with the one.
0: Yeah, I think that really goes back to the idea that Rabbi David Cooper brought up, which is the idea of the ger, which is arguably the the resident alien or the insider outsider, as he put it, where the fact that like, if we are thinking about tribalism, the fact of the matter is, is that we live in societies that are incredibly diverse. We don't live in ethnostates as much as some people would like us to. And the fact is that... These connections that are cross-cultural connections and about building a multicultural society are something that actually we do in our own lives. It doesn't need to be about building connections between me here in California and friends out in the rest of the world. We can be building multicultural relationships where we live and recognizing that this is actually kind of a core of something that can be scaled up, recognizing that we can love everyone all the people all the other beings we share this world with and it's something that i think is deeply grounded in my own diasporism and my understanding of diasporism because the position of being in diaspora is the position of being a gare of being that inside outsider that is both part of another society but also ascriptively labeled as an outsider by some the question of how we overcome that is a really big question and it's not something that's so easy To understand, and I think at the end of the day, means abolishing white supremacy and patriarchy and all forms of xenophobia that prevent us from actually having a society built on love. So I was kind of wondering how that relates to diaspora Judaism and your understanding of it, Jordan.
2: Yeah, that's a very big question. But I think it is best approached by thinking about the history of Jewish people living in societies in diaspora. I think it's Philo of Alexandria who phrased that the Jewish people's role in relation to the other the Gentile peoples is as a priest. I think that's a hierarchical framing of it, but recognizing that by living in between, living as a person who's white passing, but at the same time, somebody who's got different beliefs, a different understanding of God, a different understanding of the human role in the world, we have the ability to walk a line that ideally can bring people in, to recognize that a community isn't beautiful because it's full of people that all share the same beliefs, the same values, the same skills, the same whatever, but because it's full of difference. Again, to emphasize Emmanuel Levinas, each person is different, is unique, And that uniqueness is irreducible. Even two people who are trying to be one and the same, in the case of Ben Yanowitz and myself, we're identical twins. We are different people owing to different experiences, different relationships to the world, to schooling, to the way that we learn about ourselves and what we want to do in the world. That's what brings a community together. You know, to turn this back to ecology, I study as I said earlier, community ecology. And communities are only biodiverse and able to stably coexist because of that diversity. If every species was doing the exact same thing, everything would die. <laughs> well, maybe not everything, but what it would lead to is differences emerging and getting slowly more extreme because when everything is competing for the exact same resources for the exact same niche, the exact same space, competition is intense. Within ecological theory, competition is a net negative for both individuals involved versus symbiosis, where one or both species are able to get something out of that relationship. So recognizing that as Jewish people, as any human with our own perspective in the world, or if we just subscribe to a mainstream ideology, try to recognize the difference, the unique perspective that your life experience has enabled you to gain on the world and share that. Your voice is critical to enabling other people to be bold enough to speak up. Because we live in a time where certain political ideologies are very dogmatic, very hegemonic, and we need difference. We need to be able to affirm the differences between people. And I think that's where the ecology of love really cuts to the core as like a criticism of modern society, because we don't live in a loving society right now, at least at the scale of the whole society. So much love is relegated to the scale of the church, the scale of the synagogue. And within our Jewish communities, there is difference. Of course there is. You couldn't have an effective Torah study if there wasn't difference, because we all need to hear each other. That's where I believe bringing people in, even letting non-Jews sit in on a Torah study, for example, can help us gain a deeper understanding of what makes a Jewish tradition, our Jewish tradition, worth following and engaging in. We don't need to follow scripture, halakha dogmatically, but we can hear it and we can put it in the context of the time, the place, the context that each of us lives in and struggle with it. I think this cuts to the core of Yisrael to struggle with God is to recognize that we live in a time, a place, a context that's very unique. And we've inherited so much tradition, some of which much, a lot of it, I would even say has lots of moral, ethical, spiritual value to our modern day. But there's also a lot of, for lack of a better word, bullshit in there. And we need to engage with it. We need to speak up, to question To be open to difference. And I think that really depends on our ability to be vulnerable, to be open, to attach ourselves to our communities, to our context, to our environment, to the people outside of our communities in a way that allows us to attune, to recognize, and to appreciate the human experience that we're living.
0: There's, like, so much I would love to bring in, and it's a really big idea that I think has a lot of relevance in a lot of different ways, given the way that the internet shapes political discourse these days. It's really difficult to have a united left, or really a united any political position, because people don't know how to actually have Honest dialogue. It almost becomes just like a, a series of people trying to dunk on each other and that basically is a net negative, as you put it. I think there's the ideological perspective on this where I think the ecology of love can actually provide a fruitful perspective on how to integrate ideas, but I also wanted to think about the way it plays out on the ground as well because communities especially in colonial lands, have fraught relationships with each other and with the land that they are grounded on. So I just kind of wanted to put both of those out there. The fact that this has relevance in terms of decolonial politics and in terms of trying to build a united front for a better world. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on how we can actually use this concept of the ecology of love in practice. Yeah,
2: just as a last... Concluding note on this, well, of course, I would love to go more into depth another time, but thinking about how love in a very deep way and just assuming that each person has a desire for goodness in the world, you know, maybe we're confused we are all able to engage honestly and transformatively with others, even on the internet. I think that so much of internet discourse is inherently atomizing and alienating and we can't see the person we're engaging with. We don't even know if they're a human, you know, there's so much bot traffic on social media these days. But being compassionate, in our discourse, being generous with our solidarity, and being open to new ideas, recognizing that no one person has all the answers. And only by hearing, listening to others, to many, many, many others, can we at least approach a diasporic Judaism that's inclusive, a humanism that's open to the diversity that we see in the world and can we find an ecology of love that embraces otherness doesn't try to see sameness as the essential nature of humanity but recognizes that the various things that we all know we all do are vital to bringing about a sustainable beautiful ecological society in the future
1: that's the goal after all i really do think you know you have this duality of the fact that we really do have the possibility to break a lot of these barriers even compared to 20 years ago the fact that we are able to communicate around the world almost instantaneously imagine the people 100 years ago 50 years ago knowing about the possibilities of what could happen the barriers between people being lifted in this way and back in the 90s there were i'm sure there were people as well thinking about this with the rise of the internet and there was the possibility to have things done either way and The fact that a lot of it really is limited to the kind of vulgar and unproductive shouting of maybe humans, maybe not trolls on social media, it's really, really disappointing. So it's definitely something that we need to keep thinking about in terms of how we bridge these differences in experience and views and so on. We'll have to leave it there for now. As promised, I'm sure a lot of people were waiting for this announcement, but we do want to start a Patreon.
0: For those who might not know, Patreon is a website that allows individuals to support content creators, like us, through small monthly donations.
1: We are not in this business for making money. It's very clear, I think. However, editing, comms work equipment this all takes time and it does take money to be able to do properly and to be able to bring really i think a lot of the stuff that we're doing to the next level to be able to reach more and more people to be able to create this kind of, I don't know if I'm calling it a community is maybe just a tad too parasocial, but to be able to have feedback and be able to really bring in people, make this an inclusive environment, it requires certain help that we currently find rather difficult just this being a two or three person team.
0: This truly has been a passion project and we really would appreciate any support. I know Patreon typically has either bonus episodes or other different benefits for subscribers and we will certainly look into finding ways to make that happen whether it be open Q&As or even face-to-face conversations. We really want to have a relationship with our listeners because again, it's impossible to have a real sense of community on a platform like this. But that said we really want to do the best we can to try to create some sort of sense that this is not just our project but is a broader shared project of everyone who cares to follow what we're doing here
1: we do read the email regularly we respond to every email so please do get in touch with us we haven't been working on publicizing so much on youtube but we will read every comment we do welcome any feedback it really is a great feeling to have people reaching out from all across the world
0: as you might have noticed our social media presence has been a bit rather uh, sparse you could say that has largely resulted from our limited capacity in running this show on top of our other various responsibilities. responsibilities. If you'd be interested in helping manage our social media presence, we would love to chat about it. For comments, inquiries, questions, feel free to reach out to us. Could you remind us what the email is, Zach?
1: Contact at jewishdiasporas.com. And we'll be releasing more information on the Patreon in the coming days and weeks.
2: Well, this might not be the platform for face-to-face transformative interactions with one another. We are all striving to bring about a better world. And only when our message is out there, when we're working with each other, can we really bring about that better world.
0: And I might add that we really are continuing to work on this as an organizing project. We've been reaching out to other people who are interested in doing this work, who are already doing this work. And we'll continue to reach out and build new contacts with people so that we can bring you lovely new guests and conversations that can hopefully help make the world a better place. We would like to make sure that these voices are heard. With all that is going on in the world right now, it's important to maintain your own
2: well-being, to show yourself some self-love. Take some time to relax. In the words of the non-practicing Jew, John Kabat-Zinn, it is indeed a radical act of love just to sit down and be quiet for a time by yourself.
0: In the spirit of loving oneself, each other, and the whole world, We will end this episode with a recording of Die Zukunft, which translates to The Future, a song written by the great Yiddish poet Morris Wynchewski. I recorded this as we sang the song around the campfire on the last night of Mi'kmaq Aretz's Radical Farm Camp in July. I wanted to thank Maya Brown for leading us in this beautiful song. Although it's not a perfect recording, as we were learning it as we sung it, the English bit, translated by the Barikas, truly encapsulates the world we like to help bring about and the future diasporists have always longed for. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. That's yeah. yeah.
1: Love and Hatred Puny, mm. um, oh. oh, the world
0: will grow in beauty,
2: Love Enhanced and Hatred Puny,
1: between every state and country. In between every state and country,
0: people
1: tearing down walls.